This week's episode is sponsored by K16 Solutions. Institutions that are using Canvas and Banner have good reason to be excited. K16 Solutions, the company that brought the industry's first automated LMS migration and archiving options, now offers a data integration solution. Scaffold Data X is a new solution that extracts data from Canvas and Banner, places it in a neutral data model, and stores it in a data warehouse. The result is a cleaner view of the data. If your institution is looking for a better way to integrate its data, visit k16solutions.com. Welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I am Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at EdSurge. We're a nonprofit newsroom. We're covering education at all levels. When you think about what it's like to think, you might picture something like Rodin's famous sculpture of the seated man holding his chin in his hand, staring blankly at nothing in particular to better ponder some weighty question. This statue, which is called the thinker, that's how many of us probably imagine being deep in thought. But what if this typical conception of thinking is a bit off and is holding us back from our full capacity to learn? That's the question posed by science journalist Annie Murphy-Paul, who points to research emphasizing the many ways that our thinking is influenced not just by what's inside our skulls, but by cues outside of our heads, by our body movements, by our surroundings, and by other people that we're interacting with. Annie Murphy-Paul, it turns out, is someone who reads academic journal articles for fun. And she first encountered this argument when she came across a 1998 paper by a pair of philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers, who argued that the human mind extends into the world around it. They started off that article by saying, where does the mind end and the rest of the world begin? And that to me was a really provocative question, a potentially generative question, because in part because it seems like it has like an obvious answer or a conventional answer, which is that, well, the mind stops at the skull, right? The mind is sort of identical with the brain. She points out, of course, that we have these popular idioms about thinking. Like, it's all in our heads. But what if it's not? What Chalmers and Clark were saying was, was no. They were arguing that the mind extends beyond the head uh, into the rest of our bodies, into our physical surroundings, into our relationships with other people, into the use of our devices, you know, our technologies. She argues that those who design our technology are particularly prone to these brain-bound visions of the mind. Forgetting that users of smartphone apps and computers are situated in bodies and they move about the world in physical space with others. Maybe a better understanding of how the mind works could be a big help. Um, and that to me was a really exciting idea because it meant that if we could improve um, the quality of those raw materials that we do our thinking with, and if we could improve our skills and abilities at using those outside the brain resources, that was a kind of new way to get smarter. A new way to get smarter. That quest to help us all get smarter led Paul to dig into learning science research that she weaves together in her latest book, The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. One of my EdSurge colleagues tipped me off that Paul was coming to town here in Minneapolis 
for a conference she was speaking at. So I got to meet up with Paul in person. Though, as you'll hear, we ended up picking a part of a conference hotel that was maybe a little too hopping. Paul focuses on three kinds of extended thinking in her book. And I wanted to go through each one of these big ideas with her as we talked. The first is what researchers call embodied cognition, which it sounds a little jargony, so I wanted Paul to lay it out. Embodied cognition is the idea that um, we don't just think with our brains, we think with the sensations and movements and gestures of our bodies. So I'll just start with that first one, sensations, and uh, that actually has a less jargony name, which goes by uh, our gut feeling, you know, and we all know what that means, that um, that we, there's a kind of wisdom or a kind of um, informed sense that um, that our bodies seem to have that might elude our conscious minds, you know, so, um, and that, I'm oh, sorry to go back to jargon again, but there's a, a, a term called interoception that describes that flow of internal sensations and cues that our educational system and our culture world more generally tends to tell us to to ignore the body, to power through, you know, to get stuff done, to um, sort of live in your head and um, and and put put the body aside when something difficult or challenging needs to be done. But um, what embodied cognition suggests is that we should actually be tuning in a lot more to those uh, interoceptive sensations through um, meditative practices like the body scan. So why do educators need to know about embodied cognition? Yeah, so the brain-bound approach to thinking and learning, which is, as I say, is kind of dominant in our education system, suggests that all we need is our heads. You know, and, and these days, when, especially when we're, you know, in Zoom meetings, we can actually feel just like we're, like we're heads or like, you know, a brain in a vat. Um, but in fact... Um, the human organism thinks, we think with our whole bodies, um, which includes our internal sensations and our physical movements and our gestures. So the more we can bring the body into learning, um, and of course, I find that we are good at doing that with uh, young children, with early education. We, we think it's okay for them to run around and to interact with materials and use manipulatives. And it's like, as students get older, we have this notion that they should put all that away and start doing things just in their head. But what the science of embodied cognition shows is that the more we can um, sort of externalize um, our thoughts and um, our thinking processes, um, you know, get them out of our head and uh, express them through our bodies or learn through our bodies and our senses, um, the better our learning will be. So I think we need to bring some of that early education spirit of, you know, having the body be part of learning into middle school, high school, college, you know, all of that. Um, because we, we are embodied creatures, you know, um, we can't be anything but embodied creatures, e even as adults. And so um, embodied cognition suggests that this head-first or brain-bound approach to learning is really misguided. You mentioned, I think, a minute ago, a body scan. Can you say a little bit more about what that is? Yeah, so for a body scan, uh, you basically find a quiet space where you can um, sit undisturbed, and then you uh, kind of turn your attention inward, and you the idea is to... Uh, pay open-minded, curious, non-judgmental attention to whatever is arising in your body in, in that particular moment. And you can sort of focus on one part of the body at a time. You can think of it as like an attentional spotlight that's maybe starting at your feet, traveling up your legs, you know, up through the torso, your 
shoulders, your arms, your hands, up to the neck and the head. And at each moment, you're paying um, that kind of attention to whatever's arising in that part of your body. And the idea is that um, there's a flow of internal sensations and cues that's there all the time. We just um, tend to ignore that or push it aside. But a uh, body scan is an opportunity to really tune into what's, what's there. The second key idea that Paul explores is something called situated cognition. Again, kind of a little jargony, but it's actually super fascinating. Situated cognition. And which is the idea that where we are, our physical environment um, affects the way that we think. And that's one way in which our brains are really different from, say, a computer, which works exactly the same way, you know, my laptop works the same way in my home office as it does if I were to take it out to a park and, you know, sit on a park bench. But human brains are not like that. They're exquisitely sensitive to context. And they, we think differently, uh, say, in the outdoors than we do in, a, in, in, an, in an interior space. So given that, um, it's, it's um, a good idea for us to be aware of how our physical spaces are affecting the way that we think. And we can uh, intentionally use them in the sense of going outside to restore our attention and replenish our attention, or we can design our interior spaces, our learning and working spaces to support intelligent thought um, in ways that, you know, the brain-bound model doesn't really allow. So I mentioned at the top of the episode that this conversation that we were having, it happened in person. And since it was in a hotel where a conference was going on, there were a couple times where a group of attendees filed out of some nearby conference room and were a little noisier than I expected. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm feeling a little scattered because of where we are. At one point, we got up and walked to another part of the hotel, looking for a quieter and less busy space to talk. And I couldn't help asking, is this an example of why these ideas of the extended mind are so important? Well, it's certainly the case that we can never escape our bodies and the fact that we're embedded in physical environments. So I think, I think it's a kind of um, metaphor for the fact that... Um, we aren't just brains in a vat, you know, which is kind of how um, our culture and, and academic environments in particular have, have conceptualized human beings as just sort of brains at work. But we always have bodies. We're always in spaces. We're always relating to other people. And all of those things can become either vehicles for intelligent thought or, you know, um, they can get ignored or pushed aside or they can even work against us if we're not using them in skillful and intentional ways. Once we found a quieter spot, I asked about the third area that she explores in her book called distributed cognition. So that pushes against another really strong current in our, in our culture, which is this idea of, you know, this individualistic um, streak that are, are, is very strong in our culture, that um, ideas and thoughts belong to one brain, you know, that they're sealed inside an individual head, um, when really... Um, we are such fundamentally social creatures that um, we learn to think and we learn to speak language, obviously, in a social context. And from that beginning on, um, thinking is and learning is always um, irreducibly social and shared and uh, collective. So that's um, another way of thinking about um, intelligence is that it's not uh, a lump of stuff sealed inside one person's brain. It's really um, a collective enterprise that we need to think about in social terms. And on, on that way, what are some ways in which knowing that helps people think better? Yeah, so I think we tend to separate um, 
our social life from our mental and academic life. You know, we, we think it's okay for kids to run around and be social um, at recess or at lunch, um, but then when they get back into the classroom, it's time to be quiet and don't talk to your neighbor and, you know, do your own work. Um, but I think what we should be thinking about rather is um, harnessing the social brain in service of learning, and some of the ways we can do that are... Um, telling stories, uh, ha- teaching each other, a peer teaching kind of um, activity, or, um, or stimulating debate and discussion, all of which kind of leverages our social nature in the service of learning. After the break, how understanding thinking as something that extends beyond our heads raises issues of educational equity. Stay with us. What do you see Riverside University of Memphis and the University of Oklahoma all have in common. Well, they and hundreds of other institutions have used K-16 solutions to help them migrate to Canvas from their legacy LMS provider. And now, K-16 solutions is solving even more problems for Canvas customers. Canvas institutions that are also using a Lucian banner can finally integrate their data for a comprehensive 360 view. Gone are the days of integration solutions that take months and years to implement or that require extensive institutional resources to build reporting. Scaffold Data X by K16 Solutions extracts and integrates data from Canvas and Banner, places it in a neutral data model, and stores it in a data warehouse. The result is a cleaner, more accurate view of your institutional data. Scaffold Data X implementation takes just a few days. All data is updated near real time, and every data point in Canvas and Banner can be captured. If your institution is looking for a better way to integrate your data, visit k16solutions.com. Now back to the episode. One of the most surprising moments of our conversation for me was when Paul brought up how these new ways of thinking about thinking raise issues of educational equity and equality. You know, we we have this idea that we can rank people according to how much intelligence they have in their brains, you know. But um, if you shift to looking at things through an extended mind lens, then it's really about, well, what is the quality and the accessibility of the outside the brain resources that this person has? Um, Because we don't have anything like... our Our children, our students don't have anything like equal access to, say the freedom to move their bodies, you know, um, access to green spaces, to safe spaces, to quiet spaces. You know, they don't have equal access to helpful mentors or really skilled teachers or motivated peers, you know. And if all of those things really matter for how intelligent, effectively intelligent, how, you know, successful academically a person can be, then... um, then we need to shift away from thinking that intelligence is something sealed inside a person's head and it's more out here in the world. Yeah, so this interaction, the brain is always in a place, in a, because the body is, mm-hmm. and that that matters. Exactly, right, right. And it also opens a whole lot of new avenues for improving students' performance that aren't so as I said, brain-bound or focused on the brain. It, to me, it's, ex- it's an exciting um, perspective because it opens up so many opportunities that um, might seem closed off within that brain-bound model. 
Now, you're in town for an early learning conference, and I'm curious, what, what are some of the themes from your book that, 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 are, that are relevant to that group in particular? Yeah, yeah, I've been thinking about that because I'll be speaking later today to this group of early, uh, early childhood educators. And, you know, what's interesting is that as a culture, we're kind of more open to having little kids um, engage in what we might call the extended mind. You know, we, we expect them to use their bodies. We expect them to get, get their hands dirty and get, you know, involved with whatever's in their immediate environment. And we expect that play and social, social activities are, are all a part of learning. Um, and then we kind of expect children and older kids to put those things aside and increasingly, um, do things in their head, and by the time we're in a, we're adults, we really valorize and um, admire people who can do things in their heads. That's kind of like the mark of genius, you know. But I I think the research really suggests that it's for all of us, um, older people, older kids, as well as young kids. Um, it's more efficient and effective to get ideas and thoughts out of our heads into physical space or express them through our bodies or run them by other people rather than trying to do all those things in our heads. Why do you, some of these ideas that we've, that you've talked about sound a bit common sense. Why has it taken so long to, or why are many people may still not realize these things that you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's kind of like the extended mind, which is a relatively new idea in philosophy is just reminding us of what was always true, which is that human beings have bodies, we're embedded in physical spaces, and we're a part of these dense social networks. That's that describes us as full human beings. And unfortunately, in a lot of settings, including educational settings, but also work settings, we're encouraged to think of ourselves as just brains, as just heads. And so the extended mind, I think, kind of invites us to um, remember what we have forgotten as a culture and, um, and not to denigrate those other outside the brain resources. Like we tend to put down the body or to dismiss social activity that we think of those things as frivolous or minor or not important or not serious, you know, when actually those um, are really important contributors to intelligent thought. It's just not, um, it's not a common thread in our culture, but I'm, I'm hoping it's becoming more so. A minute ago, I asked you about early learning setting, but what about, it sounds like a lot of this is already maybe a little bit done in that, in that, you know, early stages of expecting kids to be restless, but what about it sounds like this is for all ages these these lessons about the mind so what are you what are some takeaways for educators at older levels to to do differently if you know this research yeah well i'll take one from each of those three categories that we've been talking about jeff one is um bringing the body into learning um bringing physical movement and gesture as much as possible into into the classroom um the second one would be um thinking really carefully about the spaces in which we were having kids learn um trying to get them outside as much as possible and then when they are inside thinking about what kind of cues and signals are present in the in the physical environment you know i two that i think are particularly important are cues of identity you know um kids should be able to look around and see cues that remind them of who they are in that particular environment what role they're playing you know as scholar or artist or um or thinker um 
and then cues of belonging, which tell kids that they uh, give kids the message that they belong to a valued group. Um, so I think it's useful for teachers and others to look around and see what are my kids seeing when they when they enter uh, their classroom or their school. Um, and then the third is um, this this social piece. Um, you know, I think now that we're all back together in person and not um, doing remote schooling so much anymore, we can really take advantage of what psychologists called groupiness. Uh, that's an actual scientific term. Um, and that refers to a sense that a group of people isn't just an assemblage of individuals, they're really an, ent- an entity unto themselves, a group. And that sense of groupiness tends to get people on the same page. People learn better and think better and, re- and remember things better when they do it um, together with other people in that kind of cohesive um, connected way. So those are some things I, I think are worth thinking about um, as uh, we move away from a, a brain-bound, like brain-in-a-bat model. That's so interesting. And so it's almost like really try to get a cohesive, I almost think of like the way camps um, work with kids to get people on the, you know, oh, we're part of this thing. It's yeah. it's in a way, even at an older level, to be able to, to take advantage of a group um, identity. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we do know how to do that as a species. You know, we're kind of, um, we evolved, we're built to connect with each other and to feel part of something bigger than ourselves. But our education system tends to be so individualistic that we we don't take advantage of that incredibly powerful capacity that we have as human beings. How I want to get back to the origins of this book. How did you were, you know, studying kind of teaching and learning, learning science. How did you come to find this? Yeah, so I was doing a lot of reporting and research on the science of learning and finding so much interesting stuff, but not clear on how I could pull it all together. And I'm really, I think of myself as an ideas journalist. Like I love big ideas, like the kind of idea that transforms how you see things. And I just wasn't finding that in the science of learning. I had to go a bit outside um, my usual comfort zone and, and, and find this idea in a um, philosophy journal, as I mentioned. Um, but when I came across the idea of the extended mind, it just um, pulled together all these uh, strands from the science of learning that to me um, had been so interesting but hadn't had like, a kind of spine to, to, to uh, hold them all together. Um, and so the extended mind was really the way that I found to um, find the common link among all these um, intriguing bodies of research within the science of learning that was saying, hey, the brain, um, with, all, uh, with all our emphasis on the brain and on, you know, using your head and kind of, um, um, you know, thinking harder, um, that that might not be the right way to improve um, our educational and uh, academic activities. There's another way. Have you had, um, what kind of reception have you had to these ideas as you start to talk about these and get them out in the world? Yeah. Well, because this book started, it was rooted in the science of learning, I've been especially gratified that um, teachers have really responded to um, this book. And and a lot of them have said to me, thank you for giving me um, a scientific framework uh, and a way to describe what I, I have already found my way to. You know, these are already techniques that I've used uh, and I've, I've discovered sort of through trial and error. Um, and again, I think that speaks to this idea that um, the, the idea of the extended mind is really just reminding us of who we are as whole people, entire people, you know, with bodies and who are in spaces and connected to other people. You know, I, you know we sort of 
many teachers never never forgot that and have been using techniques that um, engage all of those outside of the brain resources. It's just that they didn't have a way of talking about it until they came across this idea. So that's been really gratifying and exciting for me as a writer. How has this changed your own um, practice? Anything about your own going around in the world now that you've you know, kind of found this idea and thought through as much as you have the extended mind. Sure. Yeah. Sometimes I joke that I wouldn't have been able to write the book, The Extended Mind, without (laughs) the techniques that The Extended Mind offered me. And I'll just give you an example of that. I mean, as as I've said, there's this emphasis in our culture on doing things in our head. And of course, a book is such a huge undertaking. There's so much to keep in mind. Um, that I found it enormously helpful to engage in what I came to, to, to understand is called by psychologists cognitive offloading, and that is getting stuff out of your head, you know, ideas and, and information out of your head, f- spreading it out on, onto physical space. Um, and I used that to good effect um, when I was writing this book. I, I, you know, sort of dumped all the contents that I'd been um, so carefully collecting over over many years, like and put them on, spread them out on my wall. I used um, just sort of endless numbers of post-it notes, and then I could move those pieces around um, and see them in in relation to each other in a way that would be very difficult if all of that remained inside my head. And then the other thing that I did was I was really persuaded by the idea that physical movement and outdoor exposure are both really good for our thinking. So I tried to build that into my my daily routine. And, and sh- sure enough, I would find that something I've been wrestling with all morning, sitting at my desk, you know, working my brain the way our culture kind of, you know, tells us that's the way to solve a problem. And I couldn't make any progress. And then I would go outside, I'd take a walk, I'd look at the trees and the problem would sort of effortlessly solve itself. So I think, you know, for me, the the ideas of the extended mind kind of proved out in the writing of this book, and and I'm grateful to have to have come across them. I love that. Perhaps we should have done this, oh no, as a walk and talk through the streets of Minneapolis. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with even more distractions. But um, but yeah, that w- that would have been fun. Well, thank you for for sitting and sharing all these ideas. Oh, you're welcome, Jeff. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one. If you like what you're hearing, please follow the Ed Surge Podcast on your favorite podcast app. You can also keep up with our latest episodes by signing up for the Ed Surge Podcast newsletter. Just head to edsurge.com, look for the word newsletter. This episode was recorded and put together by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at jryoung or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Music this episode by Komaku and editing by Rebecca Koenig. We're going to be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thank you for listening. <laughs>